Good morning. It's always good to get here a few minutes early before the sermon begins, before the music begins. Just collect your thoughts, pray to the Lord. Say, God, I'm so thankful that I could be at church today. And it's just good to come a few minutes early, unless you didn't bring your sermon manuscript. Then you need to get up and leave and go home and come back and uh, get here right when Brian is praying. 20 years, first time that happened. And it totally shows you that I'm not digital because paper. I couldn't bring it up any other way. Okay, so uh, I don't know about you, but I need to pray. So let's go to the Lord together in prayer. And, uh, and then we're going to get into Jesus' prayer. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a living God. And we know that, that you are absolutely amazing. And we gather together on this beautiful day because you are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are one, and you desire that we would be one. And so we come together to sing together and to pray together and to be under the Word together and encourage one another together, all so that your glory might be made known in our midst. And we pray that that would happen. Lord, over the course of the next few minutes, as we go through a few verses of of your son's prayer, we ask you to help us understand it, help us to make sense of it, help us apply it to our lives. Father, many of us come distracted, thinking about, about everything but your word. And we don't want it to be that way. And so we pray that your spirit would be working in our hearts, even now, giving us a desire to know you better, to draw near to you, uh, our God who elects. And so we love you. We thank you for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The question of the morning is, do I belong? Uh, do I belong? And it's a question asked by all of us at some point in our lives and by most of us most of our lives. It's a question asked by the presidential candidate who wonders if he's got the, the brain and the brawn to withstand the election. It's the question asked by the kid on the first day of school who really wants to know, you know, am I going to fit in here? It's the question asked by the person starting that new job, you know, am I going to fit into the social scene of the company? It's the question asked by someone visiting a new church, am I going to be welcome here? And behind all of that is really this, this question, do I belong? And that urge to belong, that urge to be part of something, to know that you fit, to know that you're not an outlier piece of the puzzle, but you're actually a piece of the puzzle that fits beautifully into this wonderful picture. That urge is really powerful because if you belong, what you're basically saying is, you know, I matter. You know, I matter. And that's, a, that's an important thing. It's painful to be on the outside looking in. And, you know, the older I get, the more I'm convinced that that person after person spends his entire life trying to fit in. I mean, so many people I see, that's ultimately what they're doing. They try to do it in different ways. I mean, not everybody does it the same way, and we don't want to pigeonhole people, you know, but some people are trying to impress with their car or with their job or with their, their school. They're trying to impress. And what are they really trying to do? But they're trying to fit in to a particular group, a particular setting, and yet eventually we're all going to realize that, that none of that ultimately matters, right? We don't finally belong by virtue of where we work or by virtue of what we drive or by virtue of where we live. I mean, that's not where belonging happens. And so the question that, that we really need to drive home is, is a slightly different one, not just merely do I belong, but do I belong to God? Do I belong to God? That is the question that matters most. Now, my family is in the midst of adopting a little girl. And we have been foster parents. We've been a foster family for three years. And if all goes well, sometime in July, uh, we will officially be her mom and her dad. I'll be the dad, she'll be the mom. And uh, you have to clarify that nowadays. Now, uh, on that day, so just praise God. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, but on that day, you know, when it happens, it will be official. And what basically is going to happen is someone who technically does not have a home. Right now, we don't think in those terms. And you've seen her with us for so long, you're not thinking those terms. But, but legally, she doesn't have a home. 
You see, technically she doesn't have a home. And on that day, and not until that day, are we going to be able to tell her, you've got a home. You know, you belong. You don't just belong in general. You know, you belong to us, right? But not until that day. Not until that day in the court when the gavel is struck are we going to be able to say, you belong to us. And that's a beautiful, a beautiful thing. You're part of our family. In, um, in adoption circles, they call it a forever family, a forever family, right? You, you understand why, right? Because, you know, kids go from house to house sometimes, month to month, house to house. And what are they looking for? They're looking for a forever family. So what's really great about adoption is, you know, you belong to us and you've got a family, you know, forever. And that is a beautiful thing. Now that, what I've just described is, is going on right now in the Menikoff family. And it's an amazing thing. It's a wonderful thing. It blows my mind. But that is the biblical way to understand our salvation. So Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 how God chose us, chose us in Christ. God chose us in Christ before what? Before the foundation of the world, <laughs> he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then he says, in love, in love, our Father, in love, he predestined us. For what? For adoption through Jesus Christ. I mean, what's going on in a, in a, in a small way in, in, in my family has been going on cosmically as God before the foundation of the world chose a people to be his sons and his daughters. And we don't talk in these terms very much. And maybe I'll talk a little bit about why that is today. But these are wonderful biblical categories to understand what God has done for us and what God is doing in us. So Christian, just to be really clear, before you were ever created, God planned to give you a forever home. You know, and I believe that for our soon-to-be daughter, that, that God planned for her to be with us. I just trust my, my God's providence. But for all of us who know the Lord, before the world was, was ever around, God knew, God knew that you would be his. He chose you to be in his forever family. And so he gets all the credit and he gets all the glory and he gets all the praise. And what we're going to do this morning is look at, at Jesus praying to the Father. And he appears to be reveling in this truth. And that's what we get to see today. Now, this morning, what I want you to see is that our salvation and our sanctification, our salvation and our sanctification, that's the process by which we become holy, presented holy and blameless before him. Our salvation and sanctification are in the hands of a loving and sovereign God. That's what I want you to see. I think if you see that, your soul is going to be nourished. And I think if some of you understand that, even you might come to saving faith for the first time in Jesus Christ, because what I'm about to preach was written so that unbelievers would believe. That's what John says at the end of the gospel. Please turn, if you would, to John chapter 17. If you left your Bible at home, we have one for you in the pew rack right in front of you, so you don't need to leave right now and drive home and get it. Just open up the Bible right in front of you, John 17, page 903, if you're using a pew Bible. Our passage is verses 6 through 12. We're at the very end of John. Uh, we are right before Jesus' arrest, his crucifixion, his resurrection. And what Jesus has been doing, basically from chapter 14 all the way through chapter 17, is he's preparing his disciples for the very end. He's preparing them for both his tribulation, his cross, and he's preparing them for their crosses which are to come, when he leaves them and they're left, if you will, holding the bag. Because when Jesus is gone and he's ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, everyone is going to be looking at these apostles preaching the gospel. They're going to go through an awful lot and they're going to be thinking back on these words that Jesus gave them. And they're even going to be, if you will, unfolding them by the power of the Spirit in the New Testament, which is what, of course, we have today. So Jesus, in our chapter 17, he's praying but what you have to remember is that he's praying. He's also teaching because he's praying so that they could hear him. How do we know that? Because we have his words, all right? So the disciples were hearing. And then when Jesus went, the Holy Spirit reminded them of exactly what Jesus said. They recorded it down. This prayer is for their edification 
and it's for ours as well. John chapter 17, verses 6 through 12. Let me begin in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, let me just stop there. I'm going to read our verses, but I just want you to know, as I read our verses, if you would keep your eyes on the text, I'm going to give a little bit of commentary, just a little bit. But go ahead and keep your eyes on the text as we look at verses 6 through 12. The prayer continues. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. So Jesus has manifested or revealed the name of the Father. Because throughout all of Jesus' earthly ministry, what he was doing is showing his disciples the character and the power and the glory and the might of the Father. So he has revealed or manifested the Father's name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Now, this most directly is applying to the disciples whom Jesus has been ministering to and ministering with. It doesn't end there because in verse 20, he's going to go on and pray for us. But right now, he's drawing our attention to his ministry in and through the disciples. He prays, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. And then I think Jesus goes on to basically explain what, what has been given. He says, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. That is, they've received the words that you gave me. They've received those words, and through those words, he prays, have come to know in truth that I came from you and that they have believed that you sent me. And again, I would argue as you go through the, the Gospel of John and you read that Jesus was sent by the Father, these are divine categories. Not sent the way, you know, I send, you know, uh, a kid to the store. It's not like that. This is, he sent me in the sense that I am of him. We are one. And your father, my father, sent me into the world. All right? And so he says, they've believed that. They believe that I come from you, Father. Verse 9, I am praying for them. And I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, I don't know what exactly was going on in the minds of the disciples, but what a treat to sit there and know that Jesus is praying for you. I mean, I am thrilled when I hear someone comes up to me and says, Aaron, I'm praying for you. I, I just want to say, thank you, Lord, that you put this person in my life who's praying for me. I mean, how amazing. How many people in this world don't have anyone particularly praying for them? But here you've got the Messiah, and he's praying for them, and he wants them to know that. Verse 10, he says, all mine are yours, and yours are mine. You know, so even though the Father gave them to the Son, because the Father and the Son are one, at the end of the day, you know, all that belong to the Father belong to the Son, and those that belong to the Son belong to the Father. You know, and that's why earlier on in John, Jesus says, and we're going to come and dwell with them, and they're going to be with us. You know, I'm in you, you're in me, and we're going we're to dwell with them, right? Verse 11, and I am no longer in the world. Now, right as he's praying, he's still in the world. But again, if you've been with us for a while, you know that Jesus is always predicting. He's always speaking as if the end has come. So he's about to be crucified, and so he's about to leave the world. And so he prays, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. And here's the petition. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me. You've given me your name. You've given me, he says, your authority. You've given me your power. You know, I've, I've manifested your name to them. You've given me your name. Now I want you to keep them in your name. I don't want them to stray from me. I don't want them to fall from me. Father, keep them in your name that they may be one. Right now, I'm not going to talk about that today. I'm going to talk about that in a couple weeks because Jesus is going to camp on this later on in the prayer that they may be one, even as we are one, 
He says, while he prays, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Right? Now, the prayer isn't, isn't done. He's going to go on and pray a lot more about their sanctification. But what I want to do is, is pull the, the lens back and basically approach this passage with, with, with a couple statements that I think get to the heart of this main idea that our salvation and our sanctification are in the hands of a loving and a sovereign God. So I want to say two things this morning. And here's the first one. Really simple. The saved, right, those who have eternal life, the saved are chosen. That's what, I, that's, that's what I think Jesus would have us know. In verses 6 through 9, Jesus is explaining whom he's praying for and why. Even as he's praying, he's explaining whom he's praying for. He says in verse 9 that he is not praying for the world, right? He makes that clear in verse 9. Jesus says he is praying for those that the Father gave him, right? Verse 6, the people whom you gave me out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me, right? Verse 9, those whom you have given to me. And so what I think is going on here is we're getting salvation from God's point of view. It doesn't mean it's off limits to us, but it is a way of looking at salvation, in this case, the salvation of the disciples, from the point of view of God. So the world that Jesus is talking about here is full of people who are in rebellion against God. And Jesus says, look, I'm not, I'm not praying for those in rebellion against you. I'm praying for those who, out of the world, out of this mass of of fallen, rebellious human beings, out of this mass, you have given me individuals, and, and those are the ones that I'm, I'm, I'm praying for, right? Verse 6, the Father chose people from out of the world and gave them to the Son so that they can have eternal life, right? So if you, if you ask God, God, who is saved? Who is saved? Well, there's a lot of ways that God could biblically, well, every way God answered would be biblical, Right? But there's a lot of ways that he could approach and answer that question. And one way for God to respond that would be totally legitimate was, well, everyone I gave the son. Now, let's just admit it. We don't, I mean, I don't care what theological camp you come from. Most of us just don't speak this way. You know, who did God say everyone he gave the son? Now, we might say everyone God chose, everyone God elected, everyone who repents and believes, everyone who, who submits to Jesus as king, and, and all that is true. But the way Jesus frames it is all those that you have given to me. Or everyone, Father, you chose would be another parallel way of saying it. Now, so we see this in John. But, of course, if you've read much of the Bible, you know it's all over the place. And we saw it as Pat read Deuteronomy 7, I was out there in the foyer for the first time hearing the scripture reading. That was an experience. But Pat, thank you for reading the word. Uh, Ephesians 1.4. You might just want to take some notes, you know, don't try to flip around. But Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us. It goes on to expand upon that by referencing adoption. But here it's just he chose us. In him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, Acts 13, 48, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed. Well, that appointed language is it's chosen language. It's election language. As many as God appointed to eternal life, they actually believed. No more believed than were appointed. No less believed than were appointed. As many as God chose, as he, many as he appointed believed, 2 Timothy 1, 9. God saved us, and he called us to a holy calling. Right? The word calling there is not the word chosen, but even though the exact word isn't there, the idea is there in 2 Timothy 1.9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, right? not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ when? Before the ages began. So clearly there's a parallel between Ephesians 1, 4, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and 2 Timothy 1, 9, he gave us in Christ before the ages began. John 6, 44. could go a number of places in John. John 6, 44 is one. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. 
right? So unless, unless this individual is, is chosen by God, unless this individual is chosen by God, he's not going to be drawn to me, right? God is going to draw all of his, and he's going to bring them to me. So Jesus is talking about the giving over of people from the world to the Son. This is, a, again, I, I take it to be looking at salvation from God's point of view. Doesn't mean it's off limits to us. Doesn't mean we can't talk about it. Does mean that we've got to be careful and we've got to tread lightly because we're looking at salvation from the point of view of the everlasting creator of the universe. And that inevitably is going to stretch our brain. Now that's why I'm saying the saved are chosen. Our salvation is in the hands of a loving and sovereign God. And no reason in Scripture is given for this electing love. I mean, there's no, I'm looking for a reason. You know, I would, you know, I, in a sense, sometimes I, I'd want it. I mean, God, really, I'll keep the secret. I mean, you know, is it, you know, is it because I'm, you know, just kind of above, above average? You know, I don't want to be too proud, but kind of above average? You know, I mean, I won't tell any, I won't preach it, God. But if you just told me that, oh, I just think I'd be really bold, just above average. And you don't get any sense of that in Scripture. You know, you, you just don't get it. And the Israelites were so wanting that. Like, why us and not the Philistines? You know, I mean, Moses, you've got the inroads to God. I mean, you know, are we better at, what is it, metallurgy? You know, you know, working with metal. Are we better? Maybe we're just better at that. Are, you know, are we just better worshipers? And, and Moses says, no, it's because God loved you. <laughs> it's just it. God loved you. And you can, you can imagine an adopted child wanting to know, like, why me? You know, like, and what do you say? You know, not, not born of your loins, right? Not because of that. What do you say? I, we chose you. I mean, we, we love you. It's just it. And there's not, a lot, there's not a lot behind the scenes. And certainly with God the Father, we just don't know. But what you have in Jesus' prayer is, is Jesus praying to the Father, you gave them to me that I might give them eternal life. You chose them that I might, that I might save them. Yes, they're mine and they're yours and they're yours and they're mine, but you chose them. And Jesus just appears to be reveling in that. And the crazy thing to me is, is he, he wants them to know it. You know, this is sometimes like the secret of the church. Hey, don't tell them God elected you. You know, it might drive them away. And here you've got Jesus, and he's actually praying it in public. Who does that? Jesus. All right. Now, as Christians, we don't know why God chose us. We simply know that God lavishes saving grace on undeserving sinners. And if you're a Christian, you've experienced this. And here's how I know why. Because with every membership, uh, with every individual who wants to join the church, we hear their testimony, all right? Now, um, next week, you're going to hear the testimony of Zach Brown. Zach is going to be baptized, Lord willing, next Sunday morning, and you're going to hear his testimony. But that's because he's being baptized. If you're joining the church and you've already been baptized, you know, you'll sit down with a couple of elders and you'll share your story. And for 20 years, I have been doing this at various different churches, sitting down with people and hearing their stories. And it has got, I mean, it's amazing. It is so wonderful to, I mean, it just grows my faith to see how God saves people. I mean, sometimes you think if you've been around churches for a long time, you think, well, everybody was saved when they were nine. And so often that's not the case. I mean, people, uh, God is saving adults. You know, Zach, as you're going to hear, uh, saved as an adult, late 20s, after college, a miracle. But miracle after miracle, I, I get to hear about. And when people share their, their testimony, they're always saying things like, God softened my heart. He just broke into my life. He, he made me see that there's no other way than Jesus. He filled that longing that I could never find filled in anything else. And again and again and again, when they share their story, it's like they want to take God's point of view in their salvation. I mean, no one has sat down with me and said, yeah, I mean, Aaron, you know, I got straight A's in school. And when I got to the New Testament, I was really able to make sense of the Old Testament and the New Testament. I was really able to put them together. And I sat down and started doing some calculus and realized that, you know, wow, um, I figured it out. You know, the triune God and Jesus is the only way. I mean, no one talks like that. They say, God saved me. <laughs> you know, and when I hear them share their testimony, it makes me think about my testimony. 
Now, uh, many of you have heard it many times, and I'm not going to give the whole thing now. I wrote it up for this month's perspective article about evangelism. That's where I begin. But every testimony is amazing. But, and I'm not about to say, but mine is more amazing. But I scratch my head when I look back to how I was saved. So it's one, it's one night, and I'm with a friend, and my, for the very first time in my life, I hear the gospel. I mean, literally the very first time in my life, I hear the gospel, and my jaw drops. Like, what in the world is she talking about? Is she crazy? You know, but again, as I've told you, smartest girl in school. So I thought, okay, she's not crazy. I guess she could be smart and crazy. But I didn't know what to make of it. And for those of you who know me, I ask a lot of questions, and it's so annoying how many questions I ask. And sometimes when Brian and I go on the mission field, I have to promise Brian that I'm not going to just barrage the missionaries with questions. And it annoys Brian and it annoys them and it's not good cross-culturally, right? I just need to be with them. I'm not good at that. I like to ask questions. And so one would think when I first heard the gospel, what would I do but just barrage everybody with questions? I mean, that's, it's just the way I am. But it's not what happened at all. I mean, for the next few months, really, I just started reading the Bible. And there was no explanation for it. And, and I'm not saying that makes me more godly, because I think a lot of people have come to faith by asking a lot of questions, and I think that's great. What I'm saying is looking at Aaron Menikoff, it's a little peculiar. I started reading the Bible. I just started praying. When I would go to what we called big church, because I uh, first started going to a, a mega church in, in Portland, uh, Beaverton, Oregon, uh, I just thought the pastor was speaking right to me. But it's like the kibosh was put on my questions. And as I look back, I'm thinking, what was going on? Could it be that I was sort of being drawn into the tractor beam of God, where he was pulling me into his orbit, you know? And I wasn't really flailing around. It was just, Lord, I want to read your Bible, you know? And it's remarkable to me. And so as I look at what I hear from other people and when I look at what I experience in my own life, I'm struck by the fact that if God didn't choose me, there's no way on God's green earth I would have chosen him. Now, why is this important for us to think about? What's it matter? I think because it's in the Bible, number one. If it, if it matters to Jesus to pray about it, it matters to us to think about it. But let me give you a couple of other reasons why I think it's important for us to think about this. Here's the first reason. And, and I'm not going to say one is more important than the other, but here's the first reason. Because it humbles the proud. It just humbles the proud. Have you ever been in a position where you had to receive charity? It's interesting. Not many people are nodding their heads. And um, I don't think it's because you're uncommunicative. I think it's because, well, some of you haven't, but a lot of people don't want to admit it. There's just something humbling about receiving charity. Back in 2000, Dean and I drove to, from D.C. to Louisville uh, in a 1984 Honda Accord that we named Audrey. Um, that's a story in and of itself. Audrey broke down in Maryland, right? And uh, we couldn't get her fixed. And uh, so we, we sold her for scrap metal in Maryland. And so we continued driving. I had the U-Haul truck. One of us was driving Audrey. Audrey died. And so we get to Louisville. We don't have a car. And it was normal. We were close to our church family, and it was normal in the course of conversation to let our church family know what happened. And lo and behold, over the course of the next few weeks, we started receiving money from brothers and sisters in Christ in D.C., enough money to replace Audrey. Now, none of our, no, none of our cars have been named since then, um, but Audrey was successfully replaced. And, it, and I just have to say it was humbling. It was humbling because, you know, I, we certainly we didn't feel like we deserved it, uh, it was probably, if I'm going to be really honest, it was humbling because, remember, I wanted justification for higher education. I mean, I, I wanted to be a man of means, and I couldn't replace a 1984 Honda Accord, you know, so that I could, I could go to school and we could, we could putz around Louisville. It just, I was humbled by that, and I'm, I'm reminded, I'm reminded of that. But when you see that that God gifted you something that you could never buy. When you see to use biblical language that God, that God chose you, you're humbled to a degree that you've never been humbled before. Right, and it's not that you don't have questions. It's not that questions don't come up. Lots of questions, you know, why did God make people who would reject him? 
Why doesn't God elect everyone? I love Spurgeon's prayer. God save the elect and elect some more. You know, but we've got lots of questions and they're important questions. But the question that looms largest in the mind of the Christian is what we're saying this morning. Lord, why was I a guest? Why me? You know, I don't deserve it. I can't pay you back. I could, I could try to please you for a thousand trillion million years and I could never say that I deserved your saving grace. It is so humbling. And so every week for you, I pray that you would be humble. I mean, every week, there's not a week that goes by that I do not pray for Mount Vernon that you would be humble. I pray that an awareness of God's electing love would so cut you to the heart that you would never be arrogant, that there would not be a conversation that you have with a coworker or a spouse or a child or a parent or a friend or a brother, sister in the church, that there would not be one conversation marked by arrogance because you of all people should overflow with the kind of humility the world can only imagine and can only dream about. But it's the kind of humility that we know intimately when we say, God, why was I a guest? Now, at Mount Vernon, we have a statement of faith. The statement of faith is a way of describing the teaching of the church. Statement of faith is usually very basic. It's just intended to draw our attention to uh, basically parts of the Christian faith that are essential for our community together. Not all of them are essential to believe for salvation, but they're essential for us to live together in community, right, as one local church. So that's what our statement of faith is. Now, one of the doctrines that are described in our statement of faith is, in fact, the doctrine of election. Now, remember, election simply means choosing. So I want to I read to you from Mount Vernon's statement of faith, right, adopted when we became a church in about 59. Um, this is a Baptist faith and message, and here's what it says. Election is the gracious purpose of God, according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It, that is election, is consistent with the free agency of man. In other words, there's nothing about election that denies our responsibility to repent and believe the good news of the gospel. You got to repent and believe. Nothing about election that denies that. And it, election, comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It understands that God uses people, right? I know that God chose me before the foundation of the world, but I also know that God picked Brenda to share the gospel with me so that I would repent and believe, right? Election comprehends all of that. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. And notice how this particular paragraph ends. It, that is election, excludes boasting and promotes humility. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. How? Because God's sovereign goodness is the only explanation for your salvation. God's sovereign goodness in choosing you before the foundation of the world is the only explanation for your salvation. It's not about you. It's about Him. He chose to lavish grace upon grace upon you. So this is very counterintuitive, all right? We live in a, in a, in a country that some people call a meritocracy, right? A meritocracy. I kind of love that about America, right? The idea is that if you work really hard, good things are going to happen. Right? Not true 100% of the time, but at least in America, the possibility is there. You know, beautiful thing. It's a meritocracy. And so we grow up breathing the air of meritocracy. It's just so natural. You know, we preach it to our kids, work hard, good things will happen. Now, in the back of our mind, do we know that Something, they could work as, they could, they could do their best and not get what they want. Absolutely, we know that. But we don't talk about that because this is a meritocracy. And we just revel in that fact. But Christianity is not a meritocracy. It's just so different. It's so unworldly, right? Is there anything less worldly than just to affirm Christianity is not a meritocracy? And not about your ability, finally, to choose the Lord. It's not about your ability to serve the Lord. It's not about your ability to please the Lord. It's about God's sovereign goodness poured out in your life. It's his decision. Do you have a decision to make? Absolutely. But fundamentally, it's his decision. 
It excludes, do you see how that excludes boasting and promotes humility? Lord, why was I a guest? That's, that's, that's the point. So it humbles the proud. I hope if you're a Christian, I don't even have to say I hope. If you're a Christian, I know you're humbled. If you are a Christian, I know that you are humble. Praise God for that. Now, let me give you another reason why I think it's important for us to talk about this. And I was really wrestling with why Jesus praised this. I mean, I know it's true. I wasn't wrestling with the truth of it. But John is particularly an evangelistic letter. If you go to the end of John, he says, I wrote these things so that you would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I mean, I've written this so you would believe this. And I'm thinking, well, if this is an evangelistic tract, why are you talking about this hard stuff? I mean, we just leave that out. Tell Paul. Paul gets, he gets all the hard stuff. Just leave it out. I wasn't really saying that. But, you know, I'm just wondering what's going on here. And then it, 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 if you will, dawned on me that for some people, when they hear about election, they just, you know, I was like this in college, arguing with some of Dina's friends over the doctrine of election. I mean, just, what are you, crazy? You know, I was, I was asking a lot of questions. I was like that. So some people are like me. You know, you hear about it and you just kind of ball up. But some people hear this and they just think, thank God. So here's why. Because there's hope for the hopeless in the doctrine of election. There's hope for the hopeless. Let me explain what I mean. I know people who really struggle with passages that emphasize God's role in salvation. Right? They think it leaves no room for our free will. Um, they like to think that, hey, Aaron, God has done 90%. And I give you that. God has done 90%. And that's a lot, Aaron. But just basically God leaves us the last 10% because he made me with free will. He gave me the free will. He did 90% of the saving. And the last 10% is up to me. And that's basically probably what most evangelicals today would say. Maybe not that baldly. But basically, yes, Aaron, God did 90%. You know, stuff that in your category of election, 90%. But the 10%, he just left for me because he elected to give me free will. But here's the thing. There's so many people who say, I don't have 10% to give to God. I don't have 0.0001% to give to God. I've got nothing to give to him. You know, I, I've had women talking about, I've had three abortions when I was in my 20s. The Lord's never going to welcome me into the kingdom. If you know that, they think, you wouldn't let me into your church. A young man in his 40s, I led my girlfriend to have an abortion. I'm just saying there's things in people's minds that lead them to think, I've got nothing to give to God. You know, I'm, I can't get off pornography. God would never, God would never save me. I can't, I can't get off porn. I'm just so struggling with that. And there are people who are sitting in pews all across the country, all across the world, and they're hearing, they're hearing pastors say, hey, give your life to Jesus. And they're thinking, I've got nothing to give. And then the doctrine of election invades their life. And someone finally says, you need to know that none of us is here today because we had anything to give the Lord. All of us came to the Lord simply with, with empty hands. I mean, the only thing you have to give God is your sin. And there's hope because your salvation doesn't depend upon you, but it depends upon him. But then you're thinking, yeah, Aaron, I get it, but you're skirting the issue. I mean, Aaron, I went to school. You're skirting the issue. How do I know that I'm elect? And I would just say, look, if you're sitting here and you're wrestling, you're wrestling with this. And not just this. If you're wrestling with who Jesus is, you're wrestling with the gospel. You're wrestling with, hey, is, is, is God real? Is God alive? Does God want me to give my life to him? If you're wrestling with that, it sure looks to me like God is drawing you. I mean, I, is, that, is that the devil? <laughs> you know, Is it the devil who brought you to church today? <laughs> I don't think so. I can't guarantee it, but it sure looks like if you're wrestling with these, it looks like God's drawing you. Be encouraged. None of us is here because we had anything to give. None of us is here because we're the lucky 10%, right? 0% and God took care of all of it. All right. The saved are chosen. That leads us to the second point. Second, the saved are faithful. The saved are chosen and the saved are faithful. Now, as I've already mentioned, some would say that the teaching that I am giving you from Jesus, 
leads Christians to stop working, to stop sharing the gospel, and to stop pursuing holiness, right? If God chooses, they say, what's the matter what we do? If God chooses, I'm going to stay home and watch Seinfeld reruns. Yay! Okay, it doesn't work like that, right? Um, there is a book in our bookstall, J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. If, you're, if your stomach is in knots right now thinking about this idea, I want you to go and make an investment and buy that book, all right? Uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. But here's what I want you to know. The Bible never pits divine sovereignty against human responsibility. It's never done. The Bible never pits the two against one another. Both are true and both are necessary. Yes, the saved are chosen by God, but yes, the saved are faithful to God. If God has given you to Jesus, you will live for Jesus. You will be holy. You will live a sanctified life. In other words, you'll set your life apart for the Lord. It will not be a perfect life. I'll talk about that in a moment but it will be truly a sanctified life. The saved are faithful. Look again at verse 6. He prays, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. You gave them to me, and they kept your word. It's not, you know, they kept your word, and so you gave them to me. No, you gave them to me, and as a result of your giving them to me, they have kept your word. Amazing, right? Now, the disciples kept his word. Now, obviously, this wasn't perfect. In John 16, Jesus says that they'll abandon him on the day of crucifixion. But just remember the gospel of John. And while I'm talking, go back to John chapter 6, verse 60. In the gospel of John, we see that actually the disciples, the apostles, really did keep his word. I mean, it's true. We actually see it. So turn, if you would, again to John, John chapter 6. Uh, in John chapter 6, one of the most stunning books of the Bible, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And then he says, eat me. I'm the bread of life. Eat me. Eat my flesh. And this was a hard word. It's actually there. Uh, he says, whoever feeds, verse 58, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, this upset Jesus' listeners. This went beyond the pale of appropriate rabbinic conversation. Good rabbis didn't tell their disciples to feast on them. Now, as Christians, no, no problem. We've had 2,000 years of celebrating the Lord's Supper. This is new to them. Look at verse, um, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Or who can listen to this? This is tough stuff. Now, eventually, some of them stopped listening. They gave up. Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Oh, so there was a schism in the church, so to speak, right? They gave up. They, they stopped walking with Jesus. They, they abandoned him. But look at verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know you, that you are the Holy One of God. The disciples effectively are saying, look, with Peter as their spokesman, look, we don't understand everything. I mean, we don't get it. We're as disturbed by you telling us to eat you as they are. I mean, we're disturbed, but where else are we going to go? I mean, we, we trust you. We want to follow you, Right? And even at the very end of Jesus' ministry, as he's telling them more and more hard things, they keep coming back to what they know to be true. John 16, verse 30. Now we know that you know, Jesus, all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. So here's the deal. I think when Jesus prays in John 17, 8, I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I believe that Jesus means that. He actually means that they have received those words, and they really do believe that, that, that Jesus has been sent by God the Father. God the Father gave them to Jesus. They believe that. They, they, they were faithful. 
Now, not all of them were faithful. Look at John chapter 17, verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. The Judas was lost. Yes, Judas was lost. Judas was not faithful. He called himself a disciple, but he really wasn't one of them. He didn't truly believe. Jesus said this was to fulfill the Scripture, probably Psalm 41.9, that reads, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Exactly what Judas did, sharing in the Last Supper with Jesus and yet lifting up his heel to kick Jesus in the back. And so Jesus is saying, look, the Father did not give Judas to me. Judas left me. Judas was not faithful. Judas did not keep my word. The Father did not give him to me. He is not saved. He is not faithful. Now, a few minutes ago, I read from our statement of faith that discusses election, and I didn't finish, actually. There's another paragraph, and it goes on to say what I've just said, that the saved keep his word. The saved are faithful. Here it is. <clears throat> All true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by his spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation. Now, by the way, I think that's what happened to the, to the disciples, all right, the 11, if you will. They fell into sin through neglect and temptation. We've got to be careful not to draw too straight of a line between what was going on in the lives of the apostles prior to the resurrection and prior to the coming of the Spirit. We've got to be careful they were in a different period of salvation history. But I think effectively, in light of what Jesus is saying about them being given to him by the Father, of them uh, being guarded by the Son, it appears what happened when Peter denies Jesus three times and when everybody scatters is not that fundamentally they were unbelievers, but they did fall into sin through neglect and temptation. Let me continue reading. Whereby they grieve the Spirit impair their graces and comforts and bring reproach on the cause of Christ and temporal judgments on themselves, yet they shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. And so this is what Jesus is praying for them in verse 11, right? Holy Father, keep them in your name. Jesus is praying that God would... would who gave, that the God who gave them to Jesus would now keep them in Jesus. Jesus is praying what he knew God would do. You know, how much of our prayers are just praying what we know God is going to do. Lord Jesus, come back again. Lord Jesus, don't let me fall away. He's praying what you know God is. That's what Jesus did. He prayed what he knew the Father would do. And I just have to say that if you're here and you're really wrestling, like you really do want to be a Christian, you pray, Lord, Lord, I don't have anything to give you. You know, I am ready for you. I need you. He's not going to push you away. He's not going to say, sorry, you're not elect. I mean, those are the people who are elect. You know, the ones who, who come and submit. Those are the ones who are drawn. Now, there are Judases today, people pretending to be Christians, but without the grace of God in their lives. They don't last. They give up. They fall away. They don't persevere. But true believers may struggle for a season. I know this to be true. But it will only be for a season. And this is so much why you need to be part of a church, right? You need to be part of a church where you've got people looking at your life and are able to say, hey, is this a season? Like, brother, sister, this is a season. You know, let me help get you out of it. I'm here for you. There's hope in the people of God. We're one. We're here to serve one another. We will struggle for a season. But if you're a Christian, it will only be for a season, right? You're in good company. It's not okay to give up. It's okay to struggle. It's not okay to give up. Okay to struggle. Not okay to give up. And that's what we're here for. Are you struggling or are you giving up? All right. The saved are faithful. Now, why does it matter to be to know this. Why does it matter to know that the saved are faithful? I want to end with just two reasons why I think it, it really does matter that we know this, that the saved are faithful. All right? And here's the first reason. Number one, 
it encourages us to pour out our lives for the Lord. Right? If you know that the saved are faithful, that will encourage you. That truth will encourage you to pour out your life for the Lord. So at our last elders meeting, Mr. Sullivan led us in our devotional from John chapter 9. And he read these words. Scott said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. And Scott encouraged the elders to work. To, I mean, like dad with, what, four kids? Four kids, you know, lives too far away, but we love you, over in Stone Mountain. Four kids driving back and forth to church. What is he doing? He's exhorting us to pour out our lives for the Lord. I mean, I, I love to hear that, to work for God. He said, you're living in the day. You know, there's going to come a day when, the, when, when this, the toil is gone. The work's not going to be gone, but there's going to come a day when the toil is gone. But we're not there yet. It's, it's day. Work for the Lord. The night is coming. We're living in the day. Pursue holiness. You know, serve the poor, share the gospel, disciple your kids, you know, be a good witness at work. And being a good witness at work does not always mean, you know, walking them through verbally the gospel. It will eventually mean that, but sometimes it just means being faithful, you know, being a good example of what it looks like to glorify the Lord in all of your endeavors, right? Discipling brothers and sisters. I mean, I don't know where you're, you're not pouring your life out for the Lord, but I would just say if the saved are faithful, they will pour their lives out for the Lord. And so I'm encouraged by this to press on, to not give up, you know, to, to work hard for the Lord. This is just what the saved do. We're, we're faithful. Praise God. Who gets the glory? I mean, not me, but we're faithful. Years ago, I saw a movie about, about two boys. Um, it was a futuristic movie. Um, uh, one, it was in, in a day in America where you could do genetic testing. Well, you can do that now, right? But they genetically tested every embryo. And so when the mom had the, the babies, the family could know who had the good genes and who had the bad genes. And you know where that's going, right? You know, the ones with the good genes are going to be given the plum jobs and the one with the bad genes are going to be given, you know, going to be given the, 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 the jobs that they don't think take strength or take a good mind. Well, this family had two sons, and one son had the good genes, and one son had the bad genes. And um, the son of the bad genes, of course, had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. Well, every year the family would go to the beach for vacation, and every year the, the two boys, one, I think the boy with the good genes might have been a little bit older, but I don't remember, but they'd go into the ocean, they'd, they'd race to the rock out in the ocean, and they'd race back to the shore. And the really amazing thing is the kid with the bad genes always won. That's scientifically impossible. It's just scientifically impossible. He's got the bad genes, but he always won. And the kid with the good genes, I mean, was just pulling his hair out, you know. And finally, the kid with the good genes says to the brother with the bad genes, you know, how did you do it? And just this is what he said. He said, I never saved anything for the swim back. I just, that's how he did it. I never saved anything for the swim back. I mean, there's just a way. There is just a way to pour out your life for the Lord where he gives you the energy and the strength that you need. Please don't misquote me. I'm not saying you shouldn't take a vacation. I'm not saying you don't need some downtime. I'm not saying you don't need leisure. I mean, rest is a wonderful gift from the Lord. But there is a way to not save anything for the swim back. There's a way to pour out your life and, and God is going to honor that. I'm not saying God's going to bless it, like work really hard and you know, it's all going to go well for you. But I can say, work really hard, pull yourself out for the Lord, and one day you will stand before the Lord, holy and blameless in his sight. Because the saved are faithful. That's just what they are. So let's, let's be like that. And I just, I want to encourage you because sometimes we get so busy. I'm not saying you're busy with the right things, right? You need to talk to people about that. You might not be busy with the right things. But if you are busy with the right things, I just want to encourage you, keep at it, right? Just keep at it. The saved are faithful. All right, let me give you one more reason why it's so important for us to know that those chosen by God are saved and the saved are faithful. A last reason, second, because it encourages us to praise God for our faithfulness. It encourages us, it demands that we praise God for our faithfulness. Look again at verse 11. Holy Father, 
Holy Father, keep them in your name. So we need God to stay faithful. You can't be faithful without the Lord's daily presence in your life. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, we need the Lord daily in our lives to be faithful. We need the Lord. And we know he won't abandon us, right? I mean, we know that God doesn't abandon his children. He's not going to let anything happen to us. He's not going to let Satan rob us of the gospel. This is the power of God we're talking about. Romans 8, 39, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is the reason we are faithful, both because he chose us, the chosen are saved and the saved are faithful, and because God is at work guarding us, keeping us. It's not because we're great that we're faithful, but because God is great and he chose us. And it's not just, again, that he chose us in the past, but he's at work protecting us in the present, keeping us secure, guaranteeing our salvation and our sanctification. God is the reason for our faithfulness. So I really, really, really want you to leave this morning eager to pour your life out for the Lord. God, this is amazing. Before the foundation of the world, you set your love upon me. When I was running away from you, you were loving me. You had a plan for me. Oh, God, I want to pour out my life for you. But I don't just want you to leave, just charged up to go and serve and give. I want you to leave praising Christ. Because it's easy for us to start thinking that we can do it on our own when the truth is we can't. The Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. It's written by John Bunyan back in the 17th century. Um, I think it may be still after the Bible, the best-selling work in all of, of history. Uh, I haven't heard that. I haven't read that for a number of years, but this is a book that in one time, more people had read this book than any other book than the Bible. The main character is a man by the name of Christian. And Christian is on his way from a journey to the celestial city. Right, so it's an allegory, right? It's a story about a guy named Christian who's on his way to heaven, and it's this long journey. And on this journey, he's meeting lots and lots of people. And one of the people that Christian meets is a man by the name of Interpreter. Interpreter. So he was very subtle in the way he named people. You've got Christian, and you've got Interpreter. And one day, while, while Christian is just beginning the journey, he winds up at Interpreter's house. And in Interpreter's house, he sees a fire, and the fire is uh, against a wall, and the fire is burning bright, but there's someone standing over the fire pouring water on the fire. And, um, but the fire doesn't go out. In fact, the fire just keeps burning brighter and hotter. And so because it's the 17th century, Christian says to interpreter, what means this? What's going on? What means this? We should start saying that. What means this? And so interpreter says to Christian, that man holding the water is a devil. And that fire is the fire of grace in your heart that produces good works for the Lord. And the devil is standing over the fire and he's dousing it with water. But Christian says, but interpreter, the fire doesn't go out. I mean, in fact... It just gets hotter and brighter, an interpreter says. And he says, what means this? An interpreter takes Christian by the shoulder, and he takes him to the other side of the wall. And there on the other side of the wall is a little man with a little can of oil, pouring it in the back of the fire. doesn't matter how much water the devil puts on the fire, this oil is causing the fire to burn brighter and the fire to burn hotter. And Christian says, what means this? And interpreter says, that oil is the can of Christ's grace. Jesus Christ is putting oil on the fire so it will never die down. It will only burn hotter and it will only burn brighter. For a season, Jesus' disciples gave in to sin and temptation and they abandoned the Savior on the cross. But then the cross came and Jesus conquered death, 
and the Spirit entered their lives. And Jesus poured the oil of his grace into their hearts, and the flame burned so high and so hot that they were willing to give their lives, literally, for the building of the church. So go out and pour out your life for Jesus. The saved are faithful. But please give Jesus all the credit and give him all the praise because it's his oil of grace that sustains you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your might, for your goodness, and for your grace. We do not want a people to be a people who are proud and arrogant and unable to marvel in the mysteries of the gospel. One of these mysteries being your electing love. Father, help us to revel in it the way Jesus did. And for those of us struggling with this, Father, help us to remember that you do not turn away those who come to you in spirit and in truth. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.